right, welcome back to Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast, Monty Nefaro, only seen here out of Indie Music. Studio straight out of Ronkonkoma, show number two, Abe. How you feeling? Cold, but hanging in there. It's cold, but hanging in there. It's cold in this studio. Before we get to our spe special guest, who I have a so honored to have on, but first I want to recognize, uh, for New York fans, the great Bud Harrelson, uh, former Mets shortstop, manager, uh, who once fought Pete Rose, passed away today at the age of 79. Um, Bud Harrelson, if you're a Met fan, especially an icon in baseball, and um, said uh, he'll be missed. So thank you, Bud, for what you did for the baseball industry, what you did for the New York Mets, and uh, may God rest your soul. That being said, tonight my special guest, PhD, Mr. Michael Caparelli. Michael, thanks for coming on, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be a part of this. Well, when we made contact, I don't know, was it a couple of weeks ago, um, I was very excited to have you on the program. If anybody is unaware, and I'm sure they're not, but I will repeat it. Michael's a PhD and is the author of the book Monster Mirror. Uh, Monster Mirror is a in-depth look at the uh, if I want to use the word uh, serial killer uh, David Berkowitz who is spending life in prison but Mike's book isn't necessarily about everything that David did in his past but it's almost a book of forgiveness but we'll get into that um, for people who are joining us who may not know or may have forgotten about David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, um, from the years 1976 to 1977, a little over a year, David Berkowitz single-handedly uh, took the city down with fear. Um, he was known as the son of Sam. Uh, was responsible for killing six young people and wounding seven others. He was also known as the 44 caliber killer. Um, and this book talks about Michael's meetings with David Berkowitz, but I think before we get into the book, I think it's important we find out the, about the man, Michael Caparelli. So, Michael. Can you please tell us about yourself uh, growing up, how you became a PhD, and then what got you into book writing? Uh, I didn't start out a PhD, obviously, or even a believer in God or a Christian or anything like that. I was a troubled kid, 17 years old. I was locked up in a juvenile detention center. Um, I was going in the footsteps of my father. As a kid, I visited him in prison. Uh, the euphemism in Italian-American families when your dad goes to prison is he's in school. Mm -hmm. So my mother would tell me we were going to college to see dad. Uh, <laughs> I'd ask her, what you know, what is he majoring in? She says law. So I said, oh boy, this is law school, huh? I'm maybe about eight, nine years old. And then at 17, I find myself also locked up behind bars. Um, while I was in the juvenile detention center, this is in Providence, Rhode Island, about an hour from Boston, two, two and a half hours from New York City. Um, while I'm in Providence, uh, Rhode Island, in, inside this juvenile detention, I give my life to Christ, and uh, I get out, and my whole life changed after that, and that was 28 years ago. Um, became a pastor. While I was pastoring a church, the church was very heavily involved with inmates coming out of prison, uh, reacclimating to society. Um, I had done prison ministry for about 20 years, worked with all kinds of inmates. David Berkowitz wasn't the first serial killer. I'd worked with two others. Um, those particular guys were playing a lot of psychopathic games, so the relationship came to an impasse. But I pastored a church for about 16 years. Um, while I was pastoring at the same time, I was pursuing higher education, bachelor's, uh, master's degree, 
and then a PhD in behavioral science. Behavioral science is a mix of psychology, criminal psychology, um, human behavior. So I, I finished the PhD uh, probably around 2020, and I resigned from pastoring. I actually suffered two heart attacks. I had a minor heart attack at 40 years old, and then I had the widow maker, believe it or not, at 43. Just the stress of pastoring, ministry. Um, I'd gone through a divorce at the time, which was a very difficult thing, as anybody knows that's been divorced. So I finished the PhD. It was great timing because it was an opportunity for me to leave the ministry. And I had colleges that wanted me to come teach. So I right now I'm a professor at three colleges. I teach abnormal psych, criminal psychology, intro to psych. Uh, I travel the country. I'm a speaker in venues across the states. I've been in 18 states in the last year, wrote five books on the subject of mental health um, from a Christian perspective, but not lacking at all in the science, being a PhD. And I sent one of these books in 2021. I mailed it to David Berkowitz. Um, just the compassion for those that are in prison, visiting my father and, and also being a, a, an inmate at one point, uh, mailed him this book. You know, I knew his story, but I mean, the guy that raised me was from the Bronx. Soundview section is where David grew up. Um, my stepdad grew up on Arthur Avenue. So I, I knew the stories growing up as a kid. New York was always kind of a home away from home. Um, we visit a lot and knew David in that haunting sense. Uh, but I'd also seen his story featured on the 700 Club, his testimony, and was curious. So I mailed him the book, and about two weeks later, mails me back and says, I've been waiting for a guy like you that is both a believer in the supernatural but can also articulate some of the psychological breakdowns that happened during the 70s when I committed these crimes. He said, would you visit me? So I said, yes. April 1st, 2022 was my first visit at Wallkill, uh, New York, Short Gun Correctional Facility. And it was the first amongst 34 sessions, 100 hours of analyzing David Berkowitz, conducting a case study, the longest analysis ever done. Uh, the book is really two parts kind of weaved together. It's not sectioned off, but it's, it's David the man on the streets of New York. Uh, all the mental health factors behind his crimes or his murders, and then David the man now and the transformation he's experienced over the last 35 years in the prison. So the book kind of is it's written in the narrative form, but it goes back and forth between the past and who he is in the present and is taking a very psychological as well as a spiritual vantage point uh, in analyzing David Berkowitz, the longest analysis ever done of David Berkowitz in his 46 years of being behind bars. So, Michael, if we could go back a little bit, could you remember the moment while being incarcerated or in juvie, in juvie, where you recognize Christ? Yeah, there was a pastor that just died, by the way, three three months ago. His name was Mike Krautman. He himself was a guy from the streets, and he was also a correctional officer. Uh, and he would show up with his guitar, his Bible. I was 17, and he would play songs on that guitar. They, they kind of had an urban flair to them although they were Christian in content. And I remember feeling the presence of God, and I just started to cry. The walls came down. I obviously wanted to hide that reality, being surrounded by thugs. But um, I went back to my cell and just started crying. I didn't know what I was, I was experiencing. And this man, Pastor Mike Krautman, told me, you're feeling the presence of God. And uh, I asked Christ to be my Lord and my Savior, to forgive me left the prison and knew right away I was called to ministry. And my whole life changed from that point on. So here you are, this man of Christ, a pastor, um, going for higher education. What drives you to decide to send a book to one of the most notorious murderers? And again, I'm not trying to drive on this, but through history, one of the most notorious murderers in the history of this country. 
You know, when I was a kid, my father had a reputation um, of being violent. Um, I remember people in the neighborhood calling him Crazy Cappy. That was his nickname. In fact, I was just I just had company over. We were telling some funny stories. <laughs> but uh, he was a he was a tough guy, and he was he was scary. But I knew him as a dad. I knew the man, not the monster. I knew the person, not the persona. And uh, I just knew intuitively that David Berkowitz that hiding behind that persona, the persona that has captured the minds of so many people, the, the smirk during that perp walk outside the Brooklyn precinct in August 1977, that haunting look. I knew there was a persona, but there was a person. And I, I, was, I wanted to meet the person. And, and really, that's probably going back to that, those early experiences with my dad, that girl, Gina, coming up to me in the playground and saying, your dad is a scary dude. Are you okay going back home and, and living with him? And I remember thinking, my dad is, he tickles me. We we have fun. He tells me jokes. He's, he's I, I don't know this guy that you're talking about. So I, I understood something at a young age about human nature. And then, of course, with the PhD, you understand it more from a scientific point. But I knew as a kid, intuitively, there's more to a man than the myth and then the persona that's been created by those around him. And uh, that probably was my biggest drive in meeting with David Berkowitz is trying to understand the man and giving him an opportunity to tell me who he is and not who the world says he is. Well, we're going to find out about that meeting with David Berkowitz after this commercial break. I want to remind everybody watching at home, Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as the Son of Sam, on mental health and the evil uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the no, evil, not. whatever. Anyway, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Oh my God, that shows up. Phenomenon. Gee Manscaped? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, have you tried the new equipment that's been sent? I'm afraid because it says Weed Whacker. <laughs> I'm scared. Maven, Manscaped, what are you thinking about Love Manscaped, it. dude? He Love it. it. What do you use it for? Necessity. What, what don't I use it for? Put it this way. <laughs> the only hair I have on my entire body is these eyebrows. Yeah. That oh. you see. These wow. caterpillars racing to the middle of my nose. That's it. <laughs> that is it. That's all, that's all I have. And that's all I want. That's the So pick. Manscaped? There's a must. We were talking before the show. There's nothing worse than just hair. Yeah. Right? Hair on a woman, hair on a man. It's just bad. Absolutely. And it's the one thing that the older I get, it starts growing more in unwanted areas. Absolutely. I hate it. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh-oh. Just going to go out there. Oh, boy. Go for it. You're doing a deed. Yes. <laughs> Again, I don't <laughs> want you to have to admit this because we... As men, we try not to admit this, but if you're going to oh, go do I the know deed it. on a woman, I know would you rather have her be hairless or a little hair, racing stripe, or <laughs> racing stripe. full retro bush? <laughs> racing well, stripe. Retro bush is out. Yes, thank you. Retro bush is out. Yeah. Um, I don't mind a small, well-manicured landing strip. <laughs> Every now and then, if it's completely, and I'm talking like baby's ass bald, then I, I start, where is that pedophilia line that I'm, that I'm, I don't, I don't wow. want to wander into that. That's very interesting. Like that. I never thought about wow. that. You're a smart dude. Holy yeah. shit. So if the landing strip is clean enough for the plane to go in smoothly, you're cool with that. If the landing strip is, has, like I said, well manicured, yeah. you yeah. can see both sides. It's not. Like blinking lights on both sides of that plane? I just don't, I don't want, <laughs> you know, I don't want the shrubbery going off into yeah. unwanted areas on that gotcha. as well. Gotcha. Yeah, oh, look but what you found. Ooh, I got to be all honest gotcha. though. Hey, the, ah. the, the older I get though, I don't. I think I don't think I can be as. Uh, <laughs> I as, found as, it. Have, I found have it. Have you ever gone down there and like just like you, she slowly brings down the underwear? Then what is retro? Just Absolutely. Retro. You're like whoa. Wow. Yeah, like a boy. Like it pops out. Do you like walk out or what do you do? No, I, try, I muster through. I muster up the <laughs> courage. to get a trooper. Yeah. He's a trooper. <laughs> Gotta give him an yeah, Not all. Not all heroes wear capes. Yeah, I, there you no, go. I, I, there you listen, go. I couldn't. I Super couldn't Bush. say. I couldn't say. Well, 
if you have the same beliefs as Maven does, Manscaped could help you. Absolutely. The weed whacker. Absolutely. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that I may have to, like, you know, go in a room, close the door, and hang out with the weed whacker for a little while. Yeah, I think you're a retro guy, aren't you? I like 70s adult films, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, with that, Ron we're going to take a quick Batman. commercial break, and anyway. we'll be back with this wrestling icon, Maven. We will see you in a dropkick second. Uh, dropkicks. All right, welcome back to Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast, Monty and the Pharaoh, only seen here out of Indie Music TV. Once again, thanking Mr. Michael Caparelli for joining us on this very important edition of Monty and the Pharaoh. Um, Michael's book, Monster Mirror, can be purchased on Amazon or where books are sold. The book, Monster Mirror, has a different twist than might, might, most people might expect. Tell me about your first meeting with David Berkowitz, Michael. And, you know, again, we didn't know each other, so I could see you're, pre you're a pretty tough guy. So I, I wasn't sure what your demeanor was going to be. But I, I was thinking if I was that person meeting David Berkowitz, um, I was trying to figure out how I would feel. What were you feeling at that moment? Uh, probably awkward. I wouldn't say fear because, again, I've been acclimated to the prison uh, system for a long time. So I wouldn't, I'm not trying to sound tough, believe me. It's sure. Just the fear wasn't there, just a matter of fact. But there was that awkwardness. Here's the face that I've seen a million times documentaries, movies, what have you. And now we're face to face. A um, little surprised. He's 71 years old this year. And boy, was he energetic. I mean, he walks into the room more like a sprint. Um, he's hunched over because of arthritis, sciatic nerve pains down his side. He sleeps on a mattress and the springs come up very uncomfortable. So, uh, you know, aside from the arthritis and from the sciatic nerve, the guy's probably one of the most energetic men, sits down, uh, very friendly, easy to talk to. Uh, during COVID-19, well, it was 2022, but you know how it is, the COVID-19 right. went on forever in some people's minds. So we both had... <laughs> you know, Still going on. <laughs> we both had masks on. You know, it's, you know, it's comical. Here we are, right? Here's the irony, okay? I got my mask on. David's got his mask on. David's the convicted serial killer. I'm the clergyman. David is a stickler for the rules. He keeps the mask on. Every time the CO walks away, I'm pulling the mask down. I realize in that moment that the line between good and evil is made with the dry erasable marker. <laughs> because here I am, the clergyman breaking right. the rules. And here he is, the convict, and he's following the rules. <laughs> so, Very you know, funny. That, session, that session we decided it would be worth meeting and treating it as a qualitative research study and analysis, I would send him questions ahead of time, uh, semi-structured interviews, and we would narrative form going back to the womb all the way to present day. We would discuss his life and we would glean uh, what we call themes, thematic analysis, where you look for themes to surface in the data that's being collected. And I came up with nine themes after spending a hundred hours isolation, shame, abandonment, head trauma, de-individuation, cognitive distortions, defense mechanisms, resentment. And we explore these themes and how they correlated to violence in his story. And of course, as any behavioral scientist uh, does, you do what's known as a literature review, which means you do studies on these subjects according to what other studies have shown and, you know, I, I elaborate on the relationship between isolation and violence and what the studies show, shame and violence, and then weave it in with David's own story. And uh, after a year and a half, almost, I don't know, a year and 10 months, finally put all those documents together into a book. The book came out in October, ranked number one new release on Amazon in the serial killer category for the first week almost every day. Um, book has sold thousands just in a couple of months of being out and uh, and yeah so that was the first session back on point first session amongst 34 sessions so Michael you know being a pastor and a man of God do you believe in good and evil most definitely I believe the line between good and evil is within the human heart 
Um, I believe that there's a potential for evil in everyone. In fact, this is one of the great challenges of the book that flies in the face of our cancel culture that likes to create a lot of categories and say that this group of people over here are canceled and, you know, we're good. Uh, the book makes the challenge that anybody is capable of anything. And, you know, of course, it's an evolution. You're not going to just go out and kill somebody tomorrow, maybe. But spend six months mulling over your resentments. Spend six months brooding over every bad thing that happened to you. Spend six months isolating from community, the people that love you. Spend six months justifying every wrong thing you do. And you'll be shocked at the kind of person you evolve into. Um, you know, this idea that we're good people and psychopaths are the other person. It's not me. You know, that other people will do these things, never me. It's, it's really a, a contemporary idea. Most of literature, whether it be the literature of psychology, religious literature, even fiction, uh, speaks of mankind's depravity and potential for evil. I mean, the Bible says it in Jeremiah 17. It says the heart of man is wicked and deceitful. Um, the psychology data shows that time and time again. History proves that. When you go back to 1940 Germany, the majority of Germans were on the wrong side of history. The majority. Uh, we like to empathize with the heroes in history, but the truth is if we were in 1940s Germany, we probably would have did things that we regretted very much so. And we would have probably been carried away in committing maybe misdeeds, acts, maybe hiding someone, maybe whatever. Uh, because the potentiality for evil, uh, I believe, is a hidden psychopath in everybody. And David Berkowitz's story is not so much the monster from the abyss. It's more like the boy next door who, over a period of time, evolves into one of America's most notorious killers. So what you're basically saying here in, 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 in the short of it is circumstances kind of dictate what your future may be, right? Um, well, so, sort of. It's not sort just of. circumstance. Circumstances dictating what your future would be would make you helpless and negate free will. Um, it's circumstances. Things happen, trauma, life, but then you make decisions. And as you make decisions, decisions make you. You evolve into someone other than you were before the decision. So the book is not just, here's what happened to David. Right. It's also here are the intersections and the wrong decisions he made and where it took him. So would you feel the same? Well, you know, again, when you when you think of David Berkowitz, and I'm sorry, I do, I put him in that category, like you said. I, I, I group him with the Ted Bundys and the Charles Mansons and the Jeffrey Dahmers. Would you feel the same way about the past three I had just said, that their situations may have drove them to how their lives turned out? Well, yeah, I mean, David Berkowitz certainly has some similarities between the men you mentioned, and no doubt David Berkowitz in the 70s would have classified as a psychopath. Uh, low empathy, um, calculating, deceitful, exploiting people that are weak. Um, I mean, he had all the markings of, of what a psychopath is. Now, who he is today, that's an entirely different story. But who he was then, I would definitely put him in that in that category. Um, and I would definitely say that it was an evolution. It began around five years old. Uh, from five, actually it began even as a baby. When I tell his story, my job as an author is to get the reader to see, take a walk in his moccasins for a little while. Let's go down his roads and let's empathize, put ourselves in his shoes, not just see a monster but see a mirror. Uh, and by the end of the book, I'm hoping that maybe to humanize him a bit, uh, not to take away from the atrocities. What he did was awful. But this was a man behind that gun. And right now we're in a country where there are 13 mass shootings a week, school shootings, mall shootings. Every time it happens, family and friends say, I would have never suspected my son, my brother, my neighbor. So this idea, this criminal profile that we've created of what a monster is, uh, that criminal profile keeps expanding more and more because the potentiality, that good and evil line, is within everybody. So can we 
as you so uh, candidly said, can we walk in David's moccasins a little bit? Can you explain to the people watching out there what was David's life growing up that led him to this road? You know, interestingly enough, he was adopted at four days old, Brooklyn Hospital. Uh, Pearl and Nat Berkowitz were two Jewish people from the Bronx looking to adopt. Pearl could not get pregnant because of a procedure she had to help her cancer, uh, to remedy her cancer. And uh, they adopt this baby at four days old. And from the day they adopt him, I mean, they're two loving people, by the way, very devout parents. They've both gone now. But uh, David says they were the best parents, but he was very difficult to deal with. Um, now, we know, by the way, serial killers are 16 times more likely to be adopted than the general population. The stats show that. So, you know, adoption, as wonderful as it is, for some people, we can't explain this fully why this is for some, it can definitely set in motion some attachment disorders where it makes that, that child very difficult to bond with. And David was that child. He was hard to bond with. Dad lavished him with affection. Mom lavished him with love. And it was like trying to take a, a piece of tape and stick it to a wet surface. Whatever they did, it wouldn't stick. And uh, David believes that there was a trauma that happened right at the moment of adoption. Now, that might sound crazy to people. Four days old, how would you even remember that? Your mind doesn't remember that, but your central nervous system does. In fact, you know, we know when a baby's born from studies that a baby can distinguish a mother's smell from other strangers in the room. She can distinguish, a baby can distinguish the mom's uh, voice, the sound of her voice, because a bond is formed in the womb. Learning doesn't begin in the classroom. It begins in the womb. And when that bond is severed, for some people like David, created this attachment disorder. And that's, now that, listen, that doesn't mean everybody's going to become a serial killer, but it's set in motion certain relational dynamics that caused him to become very isolated. Now, we as people don't do well isolated. Isolation in general is not good for the homo sapien. We are social creatures. And David always felt like he was on the outside. Even though he was in New York City, populated city, a lot of people around never bonded. It's probably one of the common denominators behind all mass shooters, school shooters. They're all these outsiders that don't feel like they fit in. In fact, that very phrase, outsider, is used in his letter. He leaves a letter at a crime scene between two corpses, and it says, I am an outsider watching the world go by, programmed to kill. So he, he grows up very isolated, wanting to be alone, hiding behind the bed or under the bed for three hours in the dark on a Saturday afternoon when the kids are playing stickball outside on Westchester Avenue. He's hiding in closets, wanting to be alone. And uh, a lot of shame was another big piece of his story. When he was in school, his teacher would take his desk because he was hyperactive, place his desk in the center of the classroom and say to the other kids, this is where the bad boys sit. Mm. Constantly being shamed by teachers, relatives. He had an uncle that would often body shame him because he was chubby, he was fat as a kid. And all these resentments kind of pile up and he, they evolve over the course of time. By the time Davidson is adolescence, he's lighting the Bronx on fire. In fact, when he was arrested in 97, the NYPD found a journal in his apartment on 45 Pine Street in Yonkers, and it documented 1,400 fires that David lit throughout the Bronx. Um, so the same guy who's gunning people down is this serial arsonist known as the Phantom of the Bronx, who's lighting properties on fire, calling the police, uh, just as he was taunting them when he was doing the killings. He's calling the police saying, a building is on fire right now, and would leave. Um, then he goes into the military. He's in the military for three years, comes out. He's hoping to reconcile with a couple of friends and they've all scattered in different directions. He's alone again. And so this is the trajectory, the evolution of a baby eventually becoming the son of Sam. I don't want to cut you off there, but tell me a little about 
David's military experience, right? I would think I'm a I'm a former military man myself. I would think maybe he would become more, uh, you know, bonding with people, especially the close knit military family. Was he shunned in the military also? You know, he actually had some comrades that he would write to even after his years of service. Um, he he part of the reason why he joined the military, in addition to being a real patriot. Uh, he was going to Columbus High School during the hippie era, and he's one of these few patriots in the school, wanted to defend his country. But the other part of it was he, he always wanted belonging. He wanted to fit into some type of group. And in the Army, he found a degree of that camaraderie. Um, you know, they smoked weed together. They were in South Korea, uh, not even in Vietnam. It was a pretty monotonous uh, station where he was in South Korea and he's just sort of hanging around, you know, smoking weed. He's learning, you know, whatever you do in the military, but he's not really in the action of it. He wanted some action. Uh, so the bonds are formed, but one of the common uh, MOs all through his childhood is he's part of something, whether it's a baseball team, Appalachian mountain club, they used to climb mountains or the military He's a part of something, but he's always on the fringes. He's always sort of on the outside, wanting fuller integration or assimilation, but just not knowing how to do it. I'm speaking to Michael Caparelli, author of Monster Mirror, um, an inside look at David Berkowitz's 100 hours spent with the notorious son of Sam. Um, Michael when does David finally decide he wants to have his first killing? And what does he think he's going to get from that? Uh, there was a lot of pent-up frustration, a lot of unmet goals. Uh, he goes to the military expecting to be maybe a war hero. He's expecting to defend his country, ends up in a monotonous location, gets out, expecting to reconcile with some friends. They all go in different directions. He's alone. Um, he reconciled with his birth mother, by the way, which, you know, he's kind of hoping for that to remedy this wound inside or to fill this this hole, this massive void. And it's a beautiful reunion, but it doesn't it doesn't change the inside of who he is. Then he meets a cult, gets involved with some kids in Yonkers, uh, meets them at a party in Pelham Bay. And they're involved with Satanism, rituals, uh, sacrificing German shepherds. And uh, he's sort of in that atmosphere of mischief, atmosphere of rebellion. Um, starts to believe that if, if he can kill, it'll actually find some significance in this and some relief from his frustration. And he goes out, commits his first crime, first murder, and... Uh, you know, over the course of time, violence, just like any any substance, can become addictive. It can release uh, certain neurotransmitters in the brain: dopamine, endorphins, serotonin. It can it can set off some of the same neurochemistry um, that you'll see in other addictions, and it it becomes just that. It becomes an urge. He called it an urge that became very difficult to shake. Uh, it wasn't a happy time, Son of Sam. It wasn't like he was doing these things gleefully. In fact, he had many nights he would take his car, park it at Orchard Beach in the Bronx, and he would sit in his car hoping to uh, somehow escape the urges. And he said he would toss and turn all night in the car trying to fight off these urges. He said, some nights I was successful, and other nights he succumbed to the urge. In fact, he worked at the post office. He'd get out of the post office at midnight, you know, some nights, that he, the nights he worked, and he would leave the post office. He would go roaming through the streets looking for open game. And uh, it was a time of great torment. There was a lot of back and forth in his mind and really a, a wrestling uh, with these urges, urges that I described the psychological aspect of it in the book. But we also believe that there's a supernatural aspect of it, that there is a demonic reality that will prey 
on those that opened certain doors. David was opening those doors. Um, and, you know, we, sometimes we do things as people. We misbehave in a way. We don't even know what got into us. Like you might have a temper tantrum, fit of rage. And when it's all done, what do you say? I don't know what possessed me. I don't know what got into me. Boy, I got carried away. The language almost insinuates some paranormal energy behind the action. Not to dismiss human responsibility. Right. It's not saying the devil made me do it. But it's as if we get a little help from hell. And David had some help from hell, he believes. Uh, he was in uh, uh, just an entranced state during would, those shootings. He would it be empowered. fair to say, though, that he was calculated, right? Because he was targeting, you know, couples in cars, you know, couples spending nights or fooling around in cars. And, you know, he was going specifically for things that seemed to be easy enough to shoot, kill quickly and leave. Is that correct? Most definitely. Yeah, don't think of a demonic spell as you're, a, you know, a, a delirious idiot with no calculation. I mean, right. Judas Iscariot in the Bible was demon-possessed. The Bible says that. And he was very calculating in how he conducted himself and how he led the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus and he betrayed him with a kiss. And So he, calculations and demonic possession can coexist. It's not as if there's not, you know, there's demonic activity and you're a drooling, babbling idiot. Um, he was very much calculating, yes. Um, and there were a lot of psychological factors behind this. But at the same time, a diabolical influence. These things, I kind of described the interplay or the synergy behind the diabolical and the psychological. So the turmoil within David that you explained, and and Michael, I, I I hate to say it, but what you what what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I I I understand, um, but there's a point where we we also learn as an audience out there that David is being controlled by a dog that's telling him to go out and kill. Where does that fall into the story? Well, his mind, according to his own reports was very twisted at that time. He said, the more I got into this, into Satanism, the further I went with the killings, he said, my mind just got so distorted. I, start, he, I started to believe that the dog was a messenger from hell commanding me to kill. Uh, he gets to Attica in 1978 after he's arrested and he changes his story pretty quickly. In fact, the New York Times headlines read at that time, Son of Sam recants his dog possession story. He said, why did I do that? I did that because I get to Attica and the inmates are howling like dogs from the cell, from their cells. And they're taunting me all day long. I'm this young 24-year-old kid, at the time 25 actually, afraid. So I, I, I recanted the demon possession story. He said, but I look back now retrospectively and that's how twisted my mind was that I was actually distorted enough to believe that this dog was sent from hell to drive me to kill. When David starts taking the lives of these oh, let me people... Just, I'm sorry, I'm Go sorry. Command, command hallucinations is the actual term in the, in the, the clinical world are not uncommon. Um, command hallucinations don't always lead to murder. But if you talk to any therapist that's doing therapy for a long time, dealing with people with psychotic breaks um that's not a, a far-fetched thing it does happen often that they, that people with psychotic breaks do get these uh receive what's known as a command hallucination so what is the definition of a command hallucination though is that you're commanding this hallucination to happen please explain well no it's the other way around whatever you're hallucinating is commanding you so you're at the behest in david's case the dog, somebody else's case, it might be a fictitious character. You're at the behest of something uh, commanding you, uh, impelling you to move in a particular direction. Hmm. So when David starts taking the lives of these people, you explain that it's almost like a drug. He he's, can't control himself. During those times, though, in between the murders, does he have remorse? Does he feel remorse at that moment? Oh, yeah. He said, Mike, there were times I have the, the phone in my hands and 
I'm, my, my, my hand's shaking. And I so badly want to call the Omega Task Force. Uh, uh, 300 police officers organized to find David Berkowitz. And I want to say, hello, this is the son of Sam at 45 Pine Street in Yonkers. He said, of course, you know, I hang up the phone. But uh, yeah, wrestling with guilt, very much so. In fact, even the parking ticket incident, he parks in front of a fire hydrant while he's committing his last homicide. David Berkowitz is a very meticulous guy. I, I mean, I've sat with him 34 sessions. He's not the kind of guy to park in front of a fire hydrant unless there's some sub subconscious wish to self-sabotage and get caught. And he looks back at that parking ticket and he sees it now from the perspective of a 71-year-old man who's very sound-minded. He sees it as a subconscious desire to get caught. And the proof of, the, of that is when he's caught, he feels immense relief. In fact, when they caught him, he had artillery in the back seat, front seat. He was on his way to a club in the Hamptons, and he was going to commit what would have been one of the first large mass shootings in U.S. history uh, and die suicide by cop. That was what was going on in his head. And the NYPD surrounded the car. He was arrested. That plan was intercepted. But all that to say, to go back to your question, um, he was trying to get caught at the end. He just, he wanted to end and he, he felt such relief. In fact, part of the smiling on that perp walk, part of it was embarrassment. He was ashamed um, and nervousness, but there was also, a, there was some relief mixed in there too, because the torment finally, he felt it ended. He was finally, you know, he didn't have to, he, he's not in any position now to have to be at the behest of these particular commands that are going off in his head like fire, fire, um, fire sirens. I'm speaking to author Michael Caparelli, uh, author of Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once, once known as the Son of Sam. You can find this book on Amazon. Um, it was in the top seller list in October. Um, October, the uh, number one new release in the serial killer category. Number one must-read so, Michael, let's fast forward. David's in jail now. When does he discover Christ, and when does he try to start turning his life around? 1988, he's walking the prison yard in Sullivan County, um, and it's cold. It's January. He go out maybe an hour and a half walk, loves walking outside. And this young inmate, maybe about five or six years younger, Latino man by the name of Rick, shows up and says, David, Jesus loves you. And David says, you don't know my background. I'm beyond the point of redemption. And Rick joins him for a walk and just listens to him. And they talk and they form a friendship. For six months, Rick continually comes outside, meets David. They go for a walk. And then sometime in that journey, Rick gives David a Gideon Bible, a little small pocket size New Testament with the book of Psalms. David goes back to his cell. Now, he read the Bible in his military days, by the way. He was on a religious kick, but it was more for power, um, you know, kind of a use religion like a weapon deal back in the 70s. Didn't last too long. But this time, reads his Bible in his cell, gets on his knees and just starts sobbing. He said, I was crying. I wasn't crying because I was in jail. I wasn't crying because my life was ruined. I wasn't crying because, you know, I want to I want to see my family. I was crying for my sins. I was crying because of the crimes they committed, the murders I committed, and, and the sins, the offenses against God. And he gets up the next day, and he said it was like a 1,000 pounds had lifted from his chest. And he becomes a believer. He tells Rick he's given his life to Christ. Rick introduces him to the chaplain, to the community of Christians in the prison. And he becomes, for the next 35 years, a very active, involved Christian. Now, people ask me all the time, how do you know it's not a jailhouse conversion? I've been dealing with inmates for years. Jailhouse conversions last about six months, maybe that. And it's usually right before the parole hearing. You don't put on an act for 35 years, not to the extent of involvement that David Berkowitz is with his faith. I mean, he's mentors 15 guys, organizes chap 
the chapel services every week. Uh, he responds to letters, hundreds of letters that come into the prison that he writes them back. I mean, he's given me access to all these documents. I've got 1,600 documents behind me, you know, police reports, psychiatric reports, letters between him and families of victims. Very active in his faith. You can't put that act on for 35 years. Uh, so, you know, you want to know, is it, is it a real conversion, jailhouse conversion? It's a good question that people ask. But not only that, I sat with David. I didn't just see his actions. I saw something more telling than actions. I saw reactions. Reactions is a better litmus test to a man's character than actions because they're actions in real time. When a man's caught off guard, unscripted, taken by surprise, things don't go his way. How does he respond? I saw David angry. I mean, when I showed up in one session, I've described it in the book, he was enraged. An inmate had said something very derogatory. And I watched this man navigate through anger. I watch him. I watch how he handles it. And it's not the way a psychopath handles anger. Typically, when people are angry, they externalize. It's all about what's outside them. They're mad at the man, the system, the place. Instead, he internalizes. He self-reflects. He takes me down a journey for three hours of all the stuff that's underneath the anger. So I see his reactions, and his reactions tell me that he's experienced a major transformation. Doesn't mean he's perfect. In fact, he's got some character defects like we all do. Uh, we still have hang-ups, even as Christians. And I challenge him on one of those in the book. And he makes a very shocking confession to me uh, about one of his major character defects. So he's still a work in progress. But I, I would say the guy is a sincere conversion and a product of what Christ can do in a life. At any point, did David reach out to the families of the people that he took from them? And what were the family's reactions? Probably one of the most notable stories, and there are a few of them, is Stacy Moskowitz, his last victim. She was a young, pretty blonde woman, maybe 20 years old, going out on a date. And she says to her mom, Nasa, I'm going out, mom. Nasa says, Stacy, please stay home. There's a madman. He's at loose in the neighborhood, killing people. She says, Ma, don't worry. I'm blonde. He's not targeting blondes. Well, that was David Berkowitz's last victim. Now, Nasa Moskowitz hated David Berkowitz, rightly so. Went on Geraldo Rivera a couple of times, cursing David Berkowitz, uh, calling him every name in the book. I mean, you can understand the, the hate this woman had for taking her daughter's life. And Sometime in the 90s, she forgives David Berkowitz. She said the anger just ate her up inside. And they begin a friendship. They, they talk regularly on the phone. They correspond through letters. I have the letters. Um, and it, it is an amazing testament to what forgiveness can do. And uh, she even writes in one of the letters, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he didn't even tell me about it. I was just reading the letter myself alone in my office. And she says, David, please pray for my daughter, her other daughter, who was sick, who ended up going home to be with the Lord. Pray for my daughter. My daughter's sick. Here she is asking the guy who killed her other daughter to pray for the daughter that's sick. So he, he forms a relationship with her. She gets stage four cancer. She dies about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And he's also befriended some other um, relatives, too. That's more confidential. But he's, he's kept some conversations going with, uh, with some victims and their families. Michael, I also want to commend you, right? This is a gutsy book. Um, I know it's quite many moons ago, and for older people like myself, I remember it clearly. But for the younger audience, maybe not so much. But you should be com commended for writing this book because, you know, you take an angle of forgiveness. And on the cover of it, when you look at the atrocities that Berkowitz committed, uh, many people would be like, are you crazy? But I'll, I'll, I'll bring it this way. Um, I, I brought this up to my partner, Jimmy, a few times. Uh, 
he also was an elder in, in, in church. Jeffrey Dahmer, who, you know, literally ate people, right, found Jesus at the end of his life. And the question to my pastor was, you know, if someone truly wants to be forgiven, are they forgiven? And he said, you may not be able to identify with this or control it, but yes, they are. Because you're, you're looking at it as a, from just a regular human being with tons of flaws. So I'm asking you as a former pastor, is that what you believe also? I, I believe that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross covers all sins. And whosoever, which is a very uh, inclusive term, it means anyone, everyone, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on his name and ask for forgiveness, which David Berkowitz do, did, um, I believe that there's mercy. And I, I also believe that there's not this big separation between David and me. You know, we tend to categorize sin. We see people as something other than us. Uh, John Bradford was a famous man of God in the 1700s. Well, more famous now than he was then. And in England, when a man was executed, it was often done publicly. The entire community would come out. They would heckle that particular criminal. And in the midst of all the heckling, John Bradford stood up tall. He pointed to the man. And he said, there but for the grace of God, so go I. And what he meant by that was, that man and me, there's not much distance between us. I could have been that man. So I, I believe that with all my heart, is that David Berkowitz is not just a monster in this book, but he's a mirror, and the reader's going to read it. And David's story, you're going to see your story in David's story. Um, and from that perspective, what God loves every one of us and he's offering that opportunity of redemption to anybody I, i'm a firm believer in that i've seen the change as a pastor um now does that mean everybody's going to change no i i dealt with two serial killers prior to david it, it, there was no remorse there was no redemption they did talk religion for a little bit they had jailhouse conversions uh more to manipulate so i know the difference between the real and the counterfeit um, so it doesn't mean all are going to change, but the gift is available to all that want it. I mean, one of the statements, uh, you know, actually on the cover of your book, it, it says, it's easy to call people bad, but it's not easy to ask why. It's a pretty telling quote. Um, it moved me when uh, I received the book. And as that a pastor and as a religious years, man, you just spoke about two people that didn't seem they would convert, you know, that they would convert. How does that affect you, you know, when, you know, you're looking for the good in people and they don't give you the good that you're looking for? You know, I'll tell you, when I met with David in the beginning, I had resigned from pastoring after 16 years. And I'll just be honest, I was burnt out. I was just burnt out. I had suffered two heart attacks. I went through the divorce. I seen so many hypocrites in the church and people that use religion for wrong reasons. I, I, I mean, I saw the worst of humanity. I saw the best, but I also saw the worst. So I was burnt out. I was cynical. Sitting with David and seeing a guy who at one time was one of the worst among us. I mean, just an awful background. So many tragedies because of his two hands. To see that he changed and to be a witness of that change, uh, it really changed my cynical perspective. It helped me become once again, once again, I renewed my confidence that God can change people. At a point in my ministry and a point in my life where I was, I was kind of done. I was really spent. I was just kind of done. I didn't think that, you know, if people can change, it's so subtle, it's so slow. Um, you know, I don't want to be around waiting for it to happen. But to see the dramatic turnaround with David, it definitely built my confidence. So would it be fair to say that David Berkowitz, in a way, saved your life? I'd say he made a big impact on me, for sure. I mean, we're still friends. The case study's over. Um, he called me yesterday, calls once a week on the, on the phone from the prison. It's always comical because my phone, for a while, only the speaker was working, not the earpiece. Yeah, I had one of those phones. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so I'm in mixed company, right? Yeah, my right. wife's friends, they're over, they don't even know what I'm doing. They're not following my journey. And we're at the dinner table and the phone rings. I, and I, I kind of do it for shock. I, I press, you know, let the phone call come through. Collect call from David Berkowitz. Everyone <laughs> at the table's like, what is going on? Here? <laughs> a couple of times I've actually had him on speaker. I said, David, I want you to say hi to a bunch of people. Everyone <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, I'm still that. Listen, I might be a PhD, but I'm still that street kid. You know there you go. Once again, I'm talking to author Michael Caparelli, Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as the Son of Sam. I recommend anyone, please get this book. Uh, it's a really good read. You just heard Michael on the Monty and the Pharaoh show. Um, Michael gave us a inside look at David Berkowitz, not just, again, of the atrocities, but of the forgiveness. And um, I got to tell you, Michael, in speaking to you, you know, I've heard the stories about David turning his life over, but... Hearing it come out of your mouth, it's very difficult for me not to understand, you know, what you're say what you're saying. And it's like I kinda I I kinda forgive David Berkowitz for what he did. If I told David what you just said, I'm not I know this would happen. I would tell him what you just said to me. And I know he would just break down and cry because that's, that's how sensitive his heart has become to uh, wanting to make a difference, wanting to make right what he did wrong. He'll never make it right, but at least make some attempt at it. And to know that his life has impacted anybody, that is his real single desire in life, his purpose is to somehow, somehow redeem the time. Um, he knows he'll never make it right. He knows that the tragedies will always be and people will live with the pain forever. But if he if he can at least, you know, steward the time that he has left to make a difference, um, that's what he lives for today. Well, Michael, what an honor it was to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so glad we made contact. What a wonderful interview. And thank you for shedding light on what normal people like myself have been running their, you know, their whole life just believing a certain way and then being shown a different a different light. Thank you for that. It means a lot. Just the fact that you're open to receive that. I mean, you know, I told David Berkowitz once, I said, Dave, I gotta be honest with you, being your friend, being your friend and going public with this. Like I've been on the seven hundred club, a million viewers, national TV, syndicated talk show. You know, I said being your friend is like on a construction site standing in that spot where it says drop zone rocks me fall on your head that that's what it's like being his friend sometimes in the public eye uh so to meet people like yourself that are open to the person and not just stuck on the persona um i appreciate that thank you for opening your mind to this well i i gotta tell you when i when i first received the book clearly on the back there's you and david berkowitz your arm his arm you guys are have and I looked at it and I go hmm I don't know man this is like I don't know how I feel about this but now 60 minutes I understand so thank you sir and thank you for writing this book and I recommend that everybody gets it Monster Mirror 100 Hours with David Berkowitz once known as the Son of Sam Michael thank you, you again, Amazon sir. or Barnes and Noble uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble Kindle Spanish, if you speak Spanish, just type in Monster Mirror in Spanish. Uh, paperback, you can get any 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 uh, rendition of it. Audio, did you say it's on audio also? I shouldn't say any because it's not on audio yet, but it will be on audio hopefully next year. Because I'm, I'm, I'm that audio guy, right? I, I like the audio. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you again, my friend. God bless. God bless you, brother. What'd you think there, Abe? It's definitely interesting. You know, I think um, 
he made a lot of really good points and it's like i i, I agree with what you said it's it's you really got to hear him talk about it i would love to read the book now that's kind of what i'm thinking like i, I want to pick that book up and and you know see what got him to this and and yeah i got i gotta tell you man um you know i miss jimmy but this is one show that I wish Jimmy was sitting here because I would love to know after this interview what Jimmy would have thought. Me too. And, and you know, I mean, maybe we can have him back, you know? Maybe we'll have him back. I, I got I to tell you, I, I came into this. I came into this. Like, okay, I get it. Like, people want we, – we spoke before the show. Like, do you believe in forgiveness? Like, you know, even at this level. And – you know, you said some things I won't share, but you you didn't say anything wrong. All you said is, "Hey, that stuff's kind of hard to forgive." Yeah. And then I'm like, after getting talked, you know, talking to you know Michael, and the story's telling. I'm thinking like, well, you know what? This guy made a lot of mistakes, and Definitely. but he seems to have understood, you know. And and Michael, uh, Michael, you know, he seems like a really good guy, you know. So it's it's hard to like. It's hard to look at someone like that who who seems like a really genuine nice guy and nice Italian guy like yeah. me. Yeah, I got you know. And I'm like, you know, it's I hear him talk about all these things about human nature and everything, and it's hard not to just, you know, it's hard not to to see where he to see how he got to where he is now, you know. Well, I gotta tell you, I, I looked forward to it, and it did not it did not let me down. Um, yeah, that was good. Guys, next week. Two very, very, this was a great show. I really loved this interview. But next week, 7 p.m., she's in town. Well, she'll be over the Internet. But Missy Beefcake, probably going to go like an hour and a half. She's got a lot to say about a lot of people, about a lot of recent things that have happened and things in the past, stuff that people don't even know about. So Missy Beefcake is ready to go. And then right after that, we've got the fabulous ones. Kern, my man Steve Kern will be here. <laughs> but we got the fabulous ones in town, so everybody be here uh, again. We're going to have a good time. Again, I want to thank uh, both our, our guests, right? We got had Troop, who was fantastic. That dude was a monster monster yeah, that dude scared the shit out of me and then I, again i want to thank mr michael caparelli he was incredible and um i you know i'm i'm almost speechless at the interview because he i just i just yeah I, I i think phil said it you know he um he wrote mr caparelli tells a convincing and compelling sto compelling story of redemption I recommend everybody get this book. I'll show it up against Monster Mirror. You, you, you heard, Michael, where you can get it. Um, it's well worth the read. Again, I want to thank you, everybody, for joining us on Thursday. We love you all. This is Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast, Monty Nefaro. We'll see you next Thursday. Missy Beefcake and then the fabulous ones back-to-back. -back. Talk to you soon.